Hello, and welcome to The Consumer VC. I am your host, Mike Gallup, and on this show, we talk about the world of venture capital and consumer-facing startups. If you're enjoying the show, if you could please leave a review on the Apple Podcast app as it helps other folks find it, that would be really helpful. I'd like to thank Alex Pattis for the introduction to today's guest, Kiva Dickinson. Kiva is the managing partner at Selva Ventures. Selva Ventures invests in emerging brands that make their consumers' lives better. Some of their portfolio includes House, Mudwater, and Three Wishes. Prior to founding Selva Ventures, Kiva was a partner at CircleUp, where he joined during the launch of the company's first discretionary equity fund, CircleUp Growth Partners. While at CircleUp, Kiva led Series B investments in NetPods and Liquid IV. We are in strange times. And I'll be honest, this episode is a bit of a strange one as it features two different conversations with Kiva. Kiva and I originally spoke back in January before the global pandemic. Since the world has changed so much, I asked Kiva if we could record his thoughts about coronavirus in relation to the investment landscape and how he's looking at companies. So the first half of this episode is our recording back in January. The second half is our recording on March 30th. Lots of takeaways here. So without further ado, here's Kiva. Kiva, thanks so much for coming on and joining me today. How are you? I'm doing great. How are you, Mike? Doing doing so well. So tell me, what attracted you to work in venture capital in the first place? So uh, I originally started my career in, in later stage investing. Um, I was I was working at a, at a large private equity firm called TPG. Um, I really went there just to learn, learn about how businesses work, learn about how investing works. You know, over time, I grew to find that I liked working with smaller companies, smaller companies that were trying to grow. Um, and I liked working with founders. There was an element of, of just passion and, and relentlessness and desire to solve a problem and, and ownership over, um, over the creation of, of, the business and, and going from zero to one that, that really appealed to me. And so um, I wanted to, to do all the things that I loved uh, in, in the search to continue to learn, but get to work with people like that uh, and work with smaller companies. That's awesome. Yeah, we've had some other investors on here that also made that route. You know, I, I'd imagine it just feels like you're much more a part of the business as it grows. You know, every, every founder that I work with has such a unique skill set and mindset and one that I really admire and one that I frankly recognize that I don't have. Maybe in another life, I would have gotten to live a story like that. But um, with with where I'm at, uh, I really like to be a complementary part of their journey, uh, and that means you know being able to provide you know support and, and resources and capital and and understanding in certain topics that are core to the journey, but aren't necessarily their superpower, and so. Um, I think I think being able to work with with people who I really admire like that in that meaningful way uh, has been a real trick for me. Uh, so tell me a little bit about Selva. How, how did Selva come together? Yeah, so so we are a um, we're a small venture capital firm that is focused on uh, investing and supporting brands that make their consumers' lives better. Um, there's a, definitely a focus on on consumer goods, physical consumer products. Um, and branded consumer products at that. Um, you know, we, uh, we try to come in 
any time before the Series A stage. And that usually means that by the end of the Series A stage, we, we look to have a position of about $500,000 invested into each of our companies. Um, so we're pretty much, we're, we're pretty on the early side, uh, to, to say the least, on, on all of this. Um, you know, how it came about, I, I guess I was, I was working for a, a company called Circle Up. Um, had joined them in 2017 to help them launch this exciting new effort that they were working on to actually directly invest in companies rather than um, operate as a marketplace as, as they had historically done. And I found during my time there um, that while I was excited about the companies that, that we were working with, I often spent a lot of my personal time um, actually advising and, and trying to collaborate with companies that were too early for us to invest in. Um, companies that were, you know, well under $5 million in sales and sometimes less than $1 million in sales. And, um, I was really inspired by the innovation that was happening at that end of, of the consumer packaged goods market. Um, and, you know, I, th I think to your point earlier, Mike, you know, during those early days, you can actually have a much bigger impact than once they've built a more fulsome team and have started to, um, you know, understand how to overcome all of these various challenges that, that you face on your way to 10 or 50 or 100. And so I was looking to see if it was feasible to actually invest in this early stage and not just informally advise and, and befriend these entrepreneurs. Um, I had a, uh, a friend, a, a partner who was um, a founder of, of a big lighting business out of New York who I had gotten to know uh, over the past few years, actually uh, back in a previous life when I was trying to invest in his company at my old firm. And we always had this idea that maybe we would work together on something and, and both loved this opportunity and, and pushed to figure out whether it was feasible to invest in this earlier stage. Um, he began in introducing me to a few of his friends that uh, had similar um, similar interests, but different sort of superpowers, uh, and and ultimately came around to four of us in total to start this business with me as the as the sole GP. And this is all pretty recent. We actually uh, we actually launched last year in, in kind of mid 2019. I left my job at Circle Up in in June, so um, this is all sort of evolving live. Congratulations on the launch. You know, it's kind of I'd imagine being an entrepreneur on your on in and of itself, right? Launching your own fund. So so give me give me a little bit of an idea of your diligence process and and maybe a little bit more in terms of stage. I understand that you invest in like five hundred thousand uh, dollar check size but what are what are some of the metrics that you like to see or at these early stages qualities and founders that you're you're particularly focused on or, or the insights that that founders have yeah so, so we start everything mike with a few different themes that my partners and i have gotten uh, a high degree of conviction on around changing consumer behavior uh, a lot of those actually end up, by nature of the categories that we focus on, uh, they end up being nutritional trends or uh, or health trends. So one of them might be that you know people are are shifting away from extreme diets towards more balanced, nutrient dense foods. Another might be that people are being hyper hyper focused on how much sugar that they consume in beverages and are looking for alternatives to their old favorites that are really low or zero sugar. Uh, 
Another might be that people are being more thoughtful about alcohol consumption, um, trying to drink less, drink cleaner, um, you know, have alternatives when they don't want to drink while their friends around them are drinking. All of these themes have just a lot of different ways of, of playing them. And so we start by with, with conviction on a theme and understanding the different sort of subcategories that react to that theme, trying to be proactive to go out and find the companies that feel aligned. Once we find the company that feels aligned, there's an element of already believing in the problem that they're trying to solve. And that means that we kind of, I feel like at least start with a degree of rapport and understanding with an entrepreneur that can be pretty unique. Um, from there, we're looking kind of for three things. You know, one is an element of product and brand uniqueness and differentiation, a, a reason to exist. And, and that typically shows as having solved the problem that the existing uh, landscape hasn't solved for the consumer that has the pain point. The second thing is a founder that we really believe in. Now, that might be. Uh, that might be a unique background of, of having the right relationships or capabilities from previous roles, or, or frankly, even in the food world, it might just be a, a deep understanding of, of the consumer by having been the consumer for so long. You know, a lot of folks who have plant-based diets or, or um, you know, dairy-free diets uh, and, and, you know, kind of created problems to solve or created solutions to those problems that they had themselves or actually often the best positions to, to innovate in the space because they just understand the consumer so well. And then the third thing that we look for is proof. I mean, I think you asked about stage. Um, you know, we'll invest at launch on the, on the low end and we'll probably invest in a company as large as $10 million in annual sales at investment. What we look for in terms of deciding when we're ultimately going to come in uh, is an element of proof, proof that it's working, proof that they have some sort of unfair advantage, and proof that there's an element of momentum that we can get behind. So that can be you know, really attractive earned media, that can be distribution wins, that could be um, you know, really strong retention of, of people who come on board during sort of a pilot program or in, in more mature situations, it can actually just be revenue growth. Um, any of those situations uh, can serve as the proof to us that the other things have come together in a way that gives us comfortable jumping in. So the three things, just as a recap, unique reason to exist right? Belief, obviously, in the founder and the founder's mission, and then also proof and traction. In terms of proof, because you did mention, and I'd love to just first start off at the very early stages, you, you do invest in companies that, that that haven't launched yet, right? As you as you mentioned. Well, usually, usually they have, they have, they have launched, but it may have just happened. So our, our, our most recent investment uh, is, a, is a healthy cereal company. We probably invested about two or three months after they launched. How do you think about proof after a company has just launched at the very, very early stages? Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a great question because it's so unstructured and every single category is so fundamentally different based on market size, based on the number of competitors, based on um, you know, how daunting the incumbents are 
um, you know, I, I, I like to I like to constantly remind people that large consumer goods companies have really struggled to innovate uh, over the past you know call it 50 years um, but not all of them are created equal and in certain categories uh, the distribution dynamics or the incumbent brands are a lot more powerful than others uh, and harder to overcome what I would boil all those factors down to uh, is an element of I guess showing that in early samples your proof occurs in relatively scalable ways so if for example you know your your appeal is purely local and you've done a really really good job in all of the grocery stores and farmers markets in Los Angeles but for one reason or another uh, the likelihood of people in San Francisco or New York or anywhere in between is just much less likely. Um, you know, I would say the burden of proof is a lot higher for us to decide to jump in. And, you know, we've, we've seen that certainly in, in more, I would say, innovative health products that are more disruptive and, and, potentially require a bit more consumer education and, and fly at a higher price point. It's tougher for us to get comfortable with that really early. On the flip side, I made an investment just recently into a better for you cereal company called Three Wishes. And that business is really at its core trying to serve families across America uh, at a $4.99 or $5.99 price point with their kind of healthy cereal favorite, their, their kind of sentimental cereal favorites like Honey Nut Cheerios and Apple Jacks done in a healthier form uh, made from chickpeas. And there's no, in, there's no inherent reason why uh, folks who are closer to natural retailers or the coasts would be any more inclined to try or eat that than people in the center of the country or people who shop at Walmart. And as such, I think we're a lot more comfortable in that situation, gauging the interest from big retailers, engaging the sell-through at the retailers that they're in, engaging the Amazon traction that they that they garnered in the first couple of months to say, you know, we don't think this is going to hit a ceiling really soon. We feel like that proof is there. But to your point, it totally varies on the situation. And I think it, it, it takes... Uh, a lot of discipline on our part to be able to say, you know, while we love this brand and we love this founder, the proof may not be there yet. Yeah. I mean, first of all, thanks so much for that example. I'd love to also talk a little bit about, you know, if you can maybe give an example of a very competitive category, which the very early stages when maybe there, I'd imagine it's probably harder to invest when it's only one or two month old since the company has launched, you know, maybe it's a very unique product um, versus maybe, you know, a CPG product in like maybe a blue ocean, you know, category or something that's new and, and how you think about those, you know, cause I think for example, like Mudwater, I think is really interesting, which I know we talked about before. Um, and they're one of your portfolio companies where cost Coffee and tea, I'd imagine, are, are pretty competitive markets, but they, it's quite unique because, in some ways, it's a bit of a hybrid. Yeah, I think I think I think Mudwater is is a great example because that was that was a situation of within the products like them, uh, and and by that I mean 
products that were really focused on um, trying to increase education around uh, what I would call a combination of, of almost Eastern medicine-like ingredients, various nootropics, adaptogens, and, and ingredients that were um, were sort of designed to aid and assist the body and mind. There were not a lot of companies out there. Uh, you know, there's there's one or two really prominent competitors that um, you know don't necessarily focus on on taking on coffee addiction, which I think is is really Mudwater's mission. I think in that situation, you know, I I had to evaluate the uh, the the broad appeal of what they stood for, almost in isolation of other competitors, uh, as a way of saying, you know, are, are are people going to get on board with this? Is this going to be relatively niche, or are people going to use this company and their content and education and the products that they uh, use to be solutions to the problems of of everything they educate their consumers about? Um, I had to ultimately come on come on board with with that just being absolutely big, not just relatively big, um, because I don't honestly see a whole lot of companies coming along that are fighting neck and neck to convert that type of customer. Um, I think, on the other hand, you know, cereal. Uh, going back to Three Wishes, there there are notably a few other competitors that. Um, that frankly are trying to do similar things, different sorts of ingredients and, and probably standing for different things and, and maybe, so, maybe solving for a slightly different consumer, um, but ultimately trying to bring healthier products and healthier uh, nutritional specs to a category that you know, for a long time has been really big but stagnant. Um, in that case, I think I think much of the decision making on my side was was sort of made on the cereal category. It's uh, you know the footprint in every grocery store in America is so large. Uh, there's a there's a buyer who manages every single one of those aisles across the country who's probably banging his or her head against the wall every day wondering when something new is going to be there to put in front of consumers. And here are these four or five brands who are trying to do it in unique and different ways. Um, my mindset there was I'm sold on the race. Uh, which horse do I back? Um, and I also, in that situation, I think was, was sold on, on the size of the market opportunity, Mike. So, so I was pretty comfortable saying, you know, whatever horse I'm going to back, I want to back them now. I don't want to wait, you know, a year or two or three to see if more folks emerge because I think first mover advantage is, is real. And, and the early, uh, the early brands that, you know, have built up a bit of a distribution for footprint or are going to have somewhat of a moat. It totally depends in each of these situations, but I, I, I think the, the logic hopefully that's, that's flown out here through maybe a little bit of rambling uh, is, is just that, you know, when the market feels uh, like it's going to exist and grow no matter what, I'm, I'm more likely to bet on, uh, you know, a player no matter what, and I'm more likely to bet early uh, rel relative to these situations where um, the market success depends almost wholly on this one player trying to disrupt it. Also enjoy that you brought up uh, first mover advantage because 
you know, I, I talked to some other folks that are uh, technology investors that say first mover advantage, it's not always an advantage to be the first mover. But I'd imagine in CPG investing and in consumer investing, first the first mover advantage, I would think, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on this, is a lot more real because brand is so critical and crucial. CPG is interesting relative to certain other uh, certain other industries, and, and I think one of the biggest reasons why is you know, a lot of these companies, a lot of these companies use contract manufacturers, and so the the presence of true intellectual property is pretty minimal. Um, I, I, I like to say that like if if you and I Mike wanted to rip off one of the best companies in the market, uh, the products part would be would be the easiest thing to do. For most of them, there there are some unique uh, examples we can set aside for a minute. The harder thing for these for for you and I to actually knock off would be the combination of of brand and distribution footprint. Brand in that it's actually really hard to tell a story effectively why a consumer should try something for the first time, and you know often that that means you know standing for something meaningful and, and standing for a problem that they wish to solve that the consumer cares about um, or is a real pain point in their life. Um, what's even harder is to make that consumer come back. Um, that often over time presents itself almost as a form of self-expression. You know, people, um, people really deeply uh, relate to the brands that they use regularly in their lives. So I think people often underestimate Despite the lack of IP and despite the ability of, of companies to to knock one another off on a product basis and sometimes even an appearance basis, just how just how difficult it is to like supplant a brand that has become core to a consumer's identity, and the brands that do that the best um, by consistently describing their values to their consumers and giving the consumers more ways to engage just creates more and more friction to switching. It's psycho it's psychological friction. It's not structural friction. It's a big reason that, that I think it's so interesting, but also so difficult to predict. The other thing that people don't often think about is that there's distribution friction and first mover advantage and distribution is really important. Um, there's almost, there, there's only so much space on the shelf of the hundreds of thousands of, of retail doors across the country. Um, and even when people aren't walking by and purchasing products, the awareness that comes from all of the traffic of walking by shelves and, and seeing a brand over and over again, it builds comfort in the consumer's mind that again, reduces friction to try and reduces friction to come back. There's a reason that brands have existed for so long and have been so meaningful. And I think all of these things often get underestimated when compared to, you know, real structural intellectual property. That's an excellent point about contract manufacturing and IP. I also really appreciate what you said about distribution, about how you, how you, if you have such a large distribution at the very beginning, then that really is a first mover advantage. I, I do think though on exactly that point, we've hit this really interesting change sometime in the past 10 or 20 years where being an established brand does not immediately invoke trust in the consumer that it that it once did, you know, I, I think, I think years ago there would have been this, this kind of worry of, of, 
you know, what is this private label cola? Is it gonna is it gonna taste good, or are people gonna judge me if I serve it at, at, at lunch? Um, you know, is there gonna be something wrong with it? Is it gonna make me sick? And so people constantly resorted to the brands that they knew and understood because that that logo represented quality and it represented consistency. And I think what we're now finding uh, is over the years, we've actually been let down by a lot of those brands um, in one way or another. Maybe, maybe, it's, maybe it's poor product quality, maybe it's poor education, maybe it's um, you know, trying to save a little bit of cost and using you know, corn syrup or, or some other bad ingredients that aren't really good for us. You know, we, I think we've all of a sudden started to reject big brands, at least in the sense of, of them being trustworthy and consistent. And I think if you actually look at where the growth in the CPG world is coming from, it's now either coming from small brands or private label. People have either decided, you know, I, I don't care about paying extra for this logo that I actually don't align my values with. I'll either have the grocery store brand and save a few bucks because I know it's basically the same thing, a la your seventh grade uh, science fair project, or I want to pay a little bit more for something better that stands for something that I'm aligned with. And that breaking of trust of legacy brands has just broken down all the moats that these big companies once benefited from, and it's made it kind of a free-for-all. And just to add on to that, some of these kind of startups that you know, just have these like incredible founding stories that really relate to consumers. Since it's easier than ever in some way, in a lot of ways to launch your own brand, um, that, that consumers have more choice than ever, right? I think, I think every barrier, uh, that, that was once beneficial to the large, um, creators of physical products has in one way or another, gotten lower maybe it's gotten completely destroyed but in one way or another it's it's gotten lower you know i i like i like to say that um if if you and i were were trying to get together to start a food brand in the 90s and we would have all of these fixed costs that we would need to cover Um, and we would be pooling together a whole bunch of of money from friends and family and emptying out our savings accounts to be able to cover the fixed costs that are really, really hard to clear profitably when you're really small. Um, you know, whether it's making your product uh, and actually having to invest in a physical, you know, commercial kitchen or factory, um, whether it's spreading awareness about your product and having to, to buy ads rather than, you know, hyper target using social media and some of the other tools that people use today. Um, whether it's selling your product online um, and, and, you know, having to invest in, in technology resources rather than just, you know, paying your, your AWS and Shopify subscriptions. Um, you know, all of these examples are, are fixed costs becoming variable, which has made it really easy for, for companies to look and feel really effective and competitive right out of the gate. And so I think, I think that, that brings about the next question when there's so many new brands and so many choices. 
uh, who do we pick to invest in? First of all, I would say that that um, you know that's also the opportunity for your fund because of the D 2 C channel. You know, and you now don't have those incredible you know fixed costs that you might have you know 20, 30 years ago. You know that five hundred thousand that you invest goes a lot longer because there's this low low barrier of entry to starting a brand. Is this? Do you consider this the best of times to start a brand or the worst of times to start a brand? You could probably make the argument that a couple of years ago was slightly better than today to get ahead of some of this new wave of companies. But I would say, despite the added competition that you face today, it's, it's probably close to better today than ever. You, you, again, don't have this arbitrage of, of getting to use social media for the first time to target customers or being the first better for you brand in a new retailer. Um, but I think what you do have uh, is this combination of, of an industry ecosystem that has really built around making it easier for brands to start and scale. And, and the way I think of that, Mike, is Again, if I go back to you and I starting a company 20 years ago, um, the more time we spend on what we're better than everyone else at, which hopefully if we're starting a brand is building strong branding and product development. Any minute that you and I spend on finance and operations and things that, you know, at, at a subscale level, we could not possibly compete with the big companies on, the worse it is for us. So I think being able to outsource all of those non-core functions is really important. The second thing that I think makes this a, a really exciting time is just the, the behavior of consumers in being eager to reject legacy brands and information uh, and being able, being open to this new generation of brands having figured out the right answer. The shift in trust to me is everything. The reason that, again, these big legacy consumer packaged goods companies and, and broader consumer products companies uh, have been so valuable for so long is trust. And the shift in trust towards earlier brands uh, creates a massive opportunity if you were to start one today. I love that you're very optimistic about uh, today's landscape. Look, I, I, think, I think there's a lot of pessimism out there that has come from this reckoning that people speak about, which usually takes some form of direct-to-consumer brands who grew on the basis of raising venture capital, buying social media ads, uh, you know, generating growth relatively unprofitably, uh, are one day going to struggle to exit and or continue to raise capital. Um, and I think that at large, all of that is true. But the real question to me is not what's going to happen to you know, the, the 75th percentile or the 80th percentile, the, the brands that uh, are not truly trying to kind of change the world or completely change their, pro their, their underlying categories. I'm trying to understand you know, what are things like for the 95th or 99th percentile? The, the truly innovative combination of product brand led by a founder who's 
um, who has so many unfair advantages to be the one to solve the problem. I think for those brands, you're continuing to find success stories are happening at a faster pace. And to me, that gives me a lot of excitement. I'd love just to hear your thoughts as well about the relationship between profitability and growth. You know, it's really competitive online. I know that one of the trends is to move offline earlier in, into a physical retail. But how do, you, how do you think about profitability and growth in today's climate? Growth was the word of the day five years ago, and profitability is the word of the day today. I think... For better or worse, that comes from uh, people overreacting to success stories and failure stories. Um, I think the, uh, the the topic of the last few months, and you know, we're we're recording this in late January. I don't know when it's going to end, when it's going to ultimately air, but uh, is is Casper's IPO, Casper's S one, and um, you know, getting to look underneath the hood of what has been a brand building machine for the last six years uh, has been kind of an interesting realization uh, from everyone in the investor world as to what the business model ultimately looks like if you're trying to get that big that quickly without such sound profitability dynamics. Um, I think good businesses should be both. They should be able to grow effectively and they should be able to do so um, with some sort of flywheel that allows word to get out without you having to acquire every single customer. When you acquire a customer, there should be organic lift too. You should be able to spread the, you should have that customer enjoy their product and fundamentally spread the word, which should make your next customer easier to acquire. And so I, 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 guess, I guess if the, uh, if the question now facing every entrepreneur who has um, a, a physical product startup in the direct-to-consumer or omni-channel world is when are you going to be profitable and, and you know, how, do we, how do we deal with this challenge of, of what happens if you're not, I think people have to be really disciplined about understanding how the cost structures of these companies work and understand which problems of profitability can get solved by scale and which ones are just inherent in the way that they're trying to grow and how much they pay for their products and what products they ultimately sell. Um, at the end of the day, there's not some easy playbook uh, and there's not some easy report card that's going to gauge soundness of these businesses down the road. Um, that frankly is the only reason that this world is complicated enough for my job to exist. And so I, I, I'd say uh, it's a cop-out answer, but it has to be both. And it's the job of venture capitalists who ultimately back these companies to not just throw money at an extreme solution, 
but to really get under the covers and understand how the company's full P&L is going to look in three to seven years when you're starting to think about an exit. I think that's very well said, and I'm glad you brought up uh, Casper. I was, uh, I also wanted to talk with you about that, but I think that you covered um, quite a bit. And and for the record, I'm a huge fan of Casper. I own a Casper bed. I know we're I I know that you know there's been a lot of kind of debates on Twitter about profitability and growth. That, that's that story has become a very sort of you know pop culture punching bag uh, over the over the past month uh, in a really unfortunate way because. People forget that, you know, say six or seven years ago, that company doesn't exist. It's now a complete household name. So that in itself is incredibly interesting. The, the second thing is what they stand for relative to some of their competitors. Um, we may actually very well look back over the next 50, uh, 15 to, to 20 years and, and think, you know, they were very much on the right side of history. Sleep is is becoming this really um, popular complement to fitness and nutrition. If you think about the kind of three corners or three pillars of wellness, uh, I think the story that they told in their S one is getting a lot of flack um, because it it felt like a, a survivalist story that that had to make up for the lack of sound unit economics. I think the more interesting question to ask or the learning to take away from the whole Casper situation is if they hadn't raised so much money to continue growing so quickly, um, could there have been a situation where they would have actually created more value with a little bit more patience? You know, if, if, if you buy a mattress and you tell me about it, uh, I'm not going to buy a new mattress until my old one is you know, ready to go. But if Casper is serving me constant ads trying to get me to buy a mattress before my old one is ready to go or before I move, um, it's ultimately driving up the ultimate cost. But when I move, because you told me about it, um, I'm probably far more inclined to buy a Casper mattress than anything else. They have become the household brand in sleep in a very short period of time. And sometimes I just wonder that if they hadn't needed to grow so fast to satisfy some of their, um, some of their investors and, and justify the valuation that they've taken, whether in a few years, uh, this would just look, look, at, look like far more of a success story to everyone for what they've achieved in such a short period of time. Wow, I think that's a there's some great takeaways. Um, I I completely agree, and I love how you think about it in terms of you know how people right now are thinking about sleep in in relation to wellness and fitness. I guess going back to the initial question about profitability and growth, is there a certain stage that you want your portfolio companies to hit profitability and and how do you think about successful exits yeah uh, you know in, in investing so early I, I think i think there's definitely a, a a downside to trying to be too precise in the modeling that you do on these companies you know what i'm always focused on uh, is you know is the way that i value them going to uh, going to allow the company to continue successfully raising capital for as long as they have to. I think there's, you know, a whole another interview that we could probably do on the risk of down rounds and what that does to a company's momentum and trajectory. 
And then the second point is, what do I have to believe uh, in order for this company to achieve the kind of return that I need to make my broader portfolio successful? And that question, I think, is something that fundamentally differs between investors in typical consumer goods and investors in generalist venture capital who may flock to consumer goods because they're big markets and they may perceive some of the dynamics as the network effects that they look for. So by that, I mean, you know, if, if you and I looked at traditional con, uh, venture company or, or venture capital firm A, who has a 30 company portfolio and 25 of those businesses are a combination of enterprise and consumer technology, they probably need to believe that each individual company, if successful, could return the fund, meaning that they could return 30 times their investment. I, on the other hand, need to believe that each individual investment can return five to 10 times my investment. That drastically changes the kind of models that we run in order to get comfortable with an investment. Um, the reason ultimately is that within my portfolio, while there probably aren't as big winners, there aren't as many big losers. There aren't as many zeros. These companies find their product market fit earlier and they find cash flow, or at least a path, a path uh, to cash flow break even much earlier than many of these technology companies. And so what often scares me um, is uh, the, the reason that companies ultimately shoot for bigger exits uh, and raise too much money to do so is at least somewhat due uh, to misalignment between their investors' needs and their needs. Um, what their investors need to create a good outcome and what the founder needs to create a good outcome. That makes a lot of sense. I mean, you're located in San Francisco and invest in consumer brands. You know, I had Will McClellan on who said, if you want to start a brand, come to New York. How do you think about geography when it comes to starting a, uh, starting a brand? And why did you choose the Bay Area to set up shop? Great question. I mean, I, I think uh, geography certainly matters, but I think it probably comes as no surprise that, you know, while I, while I respect Will's opinion, I, I definitely disagree with him on this one. Um, you know, the, uh, the thought that New York is somewhat of a capital for direct to consumer innovation is, is probably true. Um, but I do think that, you know, if you boil down what has been, um, probably the best breeding ground for, uh, for consumer packaged goods companies, for consumable companies. Um, it probably airs closer to the West Coast. Um, and by that, I mean some combination of Los Angeles, San Francisco, uh, Boulder, Colorado, Seattle, Washington. Um, the reason that I ultimately think that geography matters is you need access to capital, you need retailers who are gonna give you a shot, and you need access to talent. Um, I would say in terms of capital, you know, San Francisco, LA, New York are all great places to be. They're all places where you're gonna get investor looks. Access to retailers, I think within California, just by product of people being so focused on their health, and often finding the greatest number of nutritional early adopters, 
there ends up being a pretty strong benefit to being out west. And then talent, I think, is a really interesting thing. You, know, you often want people who are hungry and who are passionate about brands and have some degree of experience. Um, that combination uh, can actually often be really tough in a market as expensive in New York as, as New York. You know, it's 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 challenging to hire people um, who who have any sort of experience, uh, who probably are getting um, you know offers from from the various other quite large and and well compensating companies in that city. So, for every New York success story, I can think of of so many success stories in in different parts of the country. And I even think that within secondary markets, there often is a lot of really interesting value getting created that just doesn't get talked about as much in, in you know, TechCrunch and, and, you know, the various early stage publications. Um, but, you know, when it comes to uh, companies that are trying to benefit from nutritional trends and sell food, beverage and personal products, uh, personal care products to early adopters, I would say California is a place to be. What's one thing you would change when it came to venture capital? There's probably a desire from from my point to from my standpoint to not you know, spend so much time celebrating bigger fundraises and 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 getting excited about that part of the journey. I think there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of founders and companies who are doing things much more efficiently that that deserve a lot of credit and praise. So that would definitely be one, but. Um, I think the, the biggest thing that, that I've found as I speak to, to companies and try to get feedback broadly of what they like or dislike about our, our industry, I think there probably needs to be a higher grade of transparency, um, of being uh, upfront about um, how you approach investment philosophy, how you approach investment process. Um, before investing and while doing diligence, what you're clearly looking to see um, so that the founder ultimately understands, I'm sure disagrees, but ultimately understands why if the answer is no. And then importantly, what the founder can really expect uh, when, when you ultimately decide to partner up um, and want help from you. I think every venture investor in a world that's more competitive to get into the best deals uh, has tried to, in various ways, brand their value add uh, and create different, really nice sounding, tangible ways that they can help companies. I actually take the side that uh, every venture investor, or at least most, most venture investors doing that, are really trying to do so with intent. They really do want to help the companies that they invest in. They're also really busy people. And so I think being clear about how an entrepreneur can expect to interact with them and, and actually receive some of that help that they were very excited about when they signed up to do a deal is something that's probably um, a shared burden between founders and venture capitalists, but probably falls much more on the side of VCs. And so I, I would like to see um, my, my peers and I hold myself accountable to this just be a little bit more explicit and transparent about how to ultimately help the companies that you partner with. I think that's excellent advice. Make sure you're obviously clear and transparent. What's one book that inspired you personally and one book that inspired you professionally? The, the one that 
that I think uh, inspired me most personally uh, is it's actually kind of interesting timing because he, he passed away very recently, but uh, Clay Christensen, uh, the professor at, at Harvard, wrote a, a book called How Will You Measure Your Life? And it's, it's all generally about um, just how to make really big decisions in your life in a way that will ultimately result in you looking back uh, in a really positive way. Um, he compares and contrasts it with people who, you know, are, um, you know, fall one way or another into, into temptations or traps, whether they be, whether they be ethical traps or, or just, uh, you know, traps of, of kind of inaction. Um, and, you know, I, I think about the things that, uh, the most important decisions that I've made in my life in deciding, you know, what matters to me enough to do as a career or who should I spend my life with in the form of a life partner. I actually found myself drawing quite directly uh, years later uh, on things I, I read in that book. And um, I, th I think it's honestly worth a reread given the news of his passing. Um, Professionally, there there have been there have been quite a few. Um, I loved this book that I read about a year and a half ago by a woman named Annie Duke called Thinking in Deaths. She's a professional poker player that uh, that wrote this book to basically talk a little bit about um, how people make decisions both in their job and in their lives and and think about things more as probabilistic rather than um, perfectly equate decisions with outcomes. I think hindsight bias is probably the most dangerous thing to, to roll with when you're a, when you're a venture capitalist, because um, when you got something right and you look back on it, it's easy to think of that outcome as inevitable. But in reality, you know, there are probably, you know, run that case a hundred more times and you're probably not right more than five of them. And so being able to think through uh, every decision, not just as binary, but as this as this element of prob probability, and and being able to um, sort of make your decisions with a recognition that there's no perfect way of ensuring that you're going to be right, uh, has really helped me both in being more objective in my decision making, but also uh, in living with my decisions years later when you can't do anything about it there's one thing that you have to have as a venture capitalist, it's patience. Even if things are looking good, you're not going to have your outcome for years. Um, and that book has really helped a lot with that. Wow. Those are books that I'll certainly have to check out. What's one company that's in your anti-portfolio you had the opportunity to invest in, didn't, and in retrospect, wish you did? Yeah, there, there's there's one. I mean, there there are certainly a few, but there's one that, that sits above the rest for me. Uh, it's a business up in Toronto, which is my hometown. Uh, called Love Good Fats. It's founded by a woman named Susie York. Uh, it was founded, I think, back in in um, early 2018 or late 2017. Um, and I, I chatted with them for the first time in, in 2018. It makes uh, they make a uh, a keto friendly nutrition bar uh, with no sugars or very low sugar and no sugar alcohols. Um, that 
is basically meant to replace some of the uh, kind of protein extreme that a lot of people get uh, in, in nutrition bars with good healthy fats. Think coconut oil and, and avocado oil, things like that. Um, it's one that was growing extremely fast in the early days that I absolutely loved, but one that I also think I probably underestimated two things. I think I underestimated how important it was to have a name and very simple content platform that helped people understand uh, a complicated nutritional trend, that being um, fat isn't bad, fat is good, it just depends what kind of fat you have. Sounds simple because they made it simple, um, but it's something that was new and difficult for consumers. The other thing I underestimated was frankly, just how big a movement like that can become if you have the combination of macronutritional trends, um, a brand that really distills that down in a way that's easy for consumers to understand, and a difficult product to make. We talked at the beginning of this conversation about how you and I can probably show up at a co-packer and figure most of this out. That product was actually really difficult to make. I think when you have all those things and you have that kind of head start, you're looking at such an explosive potential situation in such a short period of time. Uh, and I certainly think back to the conversations that I was having with Susie, um, you know, about a year and a half ago now. Uh, and I didn't let myself dream big enough. And so I, I think the, the lesson that I always take away from situations like that is, is not to get overexcited, but um, as a venture capitalist, don't discount the probability uh, that if something works, it's going to really work. Um, and it's something that I always take away and can thank Susie for. That's great, great takeaways. What's your most recent investment and what makes you excited about it? You know, we, we talked about both Three Wishes and, uh, and Mudwater, um, which, which I'm both super excited about. You know, the, the third one in my portfolio so far is a business called House. Um, HAUS, it's a, it's a beverage alcohol company. Um, they make a low ABV, low sugar uh, spirit um, with a transparent ingredient deck that doesn't include many of the sort of chemicals and filler ingredients that actually result in a typical spirit making you feel uh, sort of sick slash hungover. Um, I think that company has... Uh, has done an incredible job of starting with the problem faced by modern consumers who live in a world where they probably want to change their alcohol consumption habits for one way or another. Either it's it's not uh, it's not as cool uh, when you're consuming alcohol in a business setting or or a more mature social setting than it was in college uh, to have a few too many drinks and feel a bit out of control. People don't want that. Um, the world is more shareable now anyway. And so you feel like you want to be a best version of yourself, but still get the chance to relax a little bit. Um, people are also super focused on uh, how they feel when they wake up the next day and not burning productivity when they want to unwind. And so I think starting with that problem and building a brand and product from the ground up that's meant to solve it has been um, kind of a revelation within a world of, of different brands trying to better position themselves as healthier alcohol. You know, alcohol is never going to be a health product, but 
alcohol certainly can be better for you and healthier. And I think we're going to see a big wave that continues past the sort of white claw phase that we all got to see last summer of people being more mindful of what alcohol products they choose when they choose to drink. And I think House is one of the first few that feels like they're on the right side of history and how they build a product against it. Wow, I am so happy you mentioned House. I listened to Helena on uh, the Modern Retail po uh, Podcast. Yeah, she did an incredible job. I also, I also don't think there's a single brand that I've that I've met over the past year where there's more of an unfair advantage in the backgrounds and skill sets of the founders and, and the managing team. You know, Helena coming from from her experience in the in the branding and agency world. Woody coming from the product development side as a third generation winemaker, Amy, who they just joined, just brought on as, as COO last year, um, who came from Glossier and just has this understanding of, of how to build a, a content first business. Um, it, it, it feels unfair to have to go head to head against a, a team like that. And I think, you know, they, as I got to know them, checked many of the boxes that I look for in finding, you know, a founding team that can really get it done. I'm really glad that you brought that up because, you know, we talk about unfair advantage on the show, but we don't really have, we, I, I don't really actually uh, press guests for, for, uh, for examples of what unfair advantage looks like. And so house is an excellent, uh, so, so I, I appreciate you spell, uh, spelling it out, that out there. And I'm not affiliated with the Modern Retail Podcast, but uh, I can't, that that episode, well, first of all, that th that podcast is fantastic, who, who they interview. And secondly, that, that episode in particular is really interesting. And so what is one piece of advice you have for founders of consumer companies? You know, rather than, rather than focus on kind of, what to what to do or, or something to to sort of do differently i'll i'll try to shed some light on you know in the, in the context of fundraising what, what's something common amongst vcs who they probably inevitably have to deal with um the vcs are are inherently scared for one reason or another um you know they're they're uh scared that you know, the, the uncommon insight that, that they may be trying to bet on is wrong. They're scared that they're going to pick the wrong horse in the race. They're scared that uh, even if they pick the right horse, that horse is going to pull away too, too slowly. Um, and, and they'll have needed to show progress along the way to their peers and their limited partners. Uh, I think the reshifting or reframing of why VCs uh, stagnate during a fundraising process or why they ultimately say no um, towards them just being fundamentally scared might just change the way that a founder approaches the, the dialogue and storytelling and, and responsive due diligence um, towards trying to help very clearly present a story that can coherently resonate um, and, and proof points that really connect to um, what might be the fears and hesitations that the VCs have. Um, we're often not presented that way. Um, and, you know, for, for better or worse, I, I, I think the, the sort of lack of, of empathy across both sides often leads to some miscommunications. And so, 
um, I think I think that best advice would would probably be um, you know focus on how to help first diagnose uh, what might truly be holding them back, uh, and then collaborate to try to you know get them over the hump. I don't think we've actually heard that advice yet on this show, so that's uh, it's, that's that's brilliant. And now for my conversation with Kiva on March 31st. So Kiva, we're living in this you know global pandemic. Um, how are you first having to adjust to new work protocols, working from home? I uh, just wanted to share like some of your thoughts about how how maybe your your work has changed. Yeah, it's it's interesting. I mean, in in terms of how I interact internally uh, with my partners. You know, we're we're um, you know, we're remote to begin with. Uh, my partners live in in Toronto, Florida, and New York, uh, and so our internal discussions have really not changed that much. Although, you know, it, we're we're discussing this at the end of March, and you know, somewhere in the middle of that, it it, it probably is two and a half weeks ago, but it feels like three months ago. Uh, I moved from from my office to work from home. Um, I think the bigger the bigger change is is just that I spend a lot of my time on the road usually uh, meeting face to face with folks and, and getting adjusted to these discussions happening primarily by zoom and by phone and by email that that you know might have been you know more casual in person opportunities to build relationships um, has changed quite a bit um, it's the latter that I think uh, you know most in investors and and founders who are in you know, fundraising conversations are, are suffering most from. There, there's always the um, the connection that we like to build and the relationship that we like to build over time that just doesn't doesn't quite translate quite as well uh, when you when you bring technology into the fold. Although, um, you know, I think we're making the best of it and getting used to it day by day. Yeah, I mean, you know, I've I've had folks on the show that they actually their discussions with founders are all remote. They actually, in some of their investments, they might not even meet their founders face-to-face in like a few months. Talk to me a little bit about, you know, your diligence process, maybe um, just expand on that before Corona and, you know, what it's like right now. Are you you seeing that it's going to take a longer time to make decisions? Yeah. I mean, I I think I've got to, I've got to separate certainly from, you know, the, the state of volatility that we find ourselves in. Uh, and and how we're reacting to the market conditions, which I think a, a lot of investors would tell you they're they're um, they're still calibrating themselves as to you know what they need to learn about the external world and and the external market um, as it pertains to the actual process of interaction. My biggest push has just been forcing things uh, to be you know by Zoom or by FaceTime rather than by by phone alone. Um, you know, the, the ability to just look somebody in the eye, even if it's by video, um, should get most of the way there. And I think if you're an investor who, um, who isn't able to, to pull the trigger only because they have not been able to spend in-person time with somebody, if truly everything else checks out, um, I'd probably argue you're, you're looking for a way out rather than, rather than really um, suffering a diligence issue. So, you know, in, in most of my interactions, we do spend uh, pre-corona a lot of time with companies by video and by phone. And and the in-person time is often reserved more than anything for higher level conversations and social conversations, opportunities to just 
you know, kind of, kind of real talk and, and, and understand what makes these people tick and give them opportunities to ask me the hard questions as an investor. Um, and I think it's frankly on us to just, you know, set a culture in, in the kind of conversations that we'll, we'll have using technology now uh, to make sure that we each get a, a good sense of each other as a person, the founder and the investor. No, I think that makes a lot of sense. And I completely agree with you that, uh, you know, being able to, uh, to see the person in the face, even if it's digital, makes such a difference than just a phone call. Um, absolutely. So I wanted to also know what was, what, what would you say, uh, you know, a very rough estimate, what's uh, kind of the ratio or percentages of focusing on portfolio companies prior to Corona versus, you know, sourcing uh, new and diligence on, you know, new potential opportunities versus now? Has it, has that changed uh, quite a bit or is it still roughly the same? I, I've definitely been, you know, where I can checking in and spending time with the respective companies to make sure that you know they know that i'm in their corner that they know that you know as they navigate a challenging time i'm here to help i'm here as a thought partner um, i'm here to you know make valuable introductions and introduce contingencies that that you know may not have otherwise been available to them but frankly mike i mean we're so early in this that you know, in, in, in many ways, uh, I'm letting them put out fires and just, and just letting them know that I'm here. I certainly don't think this is, this is a, a situation yet where all hands need to be on deck in, in, in the cases that, that I have with my respective companies. Uh, it's more, you know, trusting them to navigate the waters as, as steady hands. I mean, it, the ability to, to, to work through a crisis um, of any type, not necessarily a pandemic, but a crisis of any type is, is part of the evaluation that, that we go through when evaluating whether, the, whether it's a founder that we want to invest in. Um, and so, you know, now is the time for, for us to kind of let them do that, but, uh, you know, also, also make ourselves available where it makes sense. I think that points to the second part of the question, which is how much time do we spend on new investments? Um, you know, we're, we're, we're trying to make sense of this. You know, like I said, it's, it's, it's March 31st and I can't put to words how different the world looked 30 days ago, how different, uh, the markets looked, how different the economy looked, how different supply chains and retailers looked. Um, so much culturally has shifted in such a short period of time that, you know, while we have a lot of dry powder and while we certainly are, are going to be active this year. Um, I think I think it's it's a it's a time where we as investors are are really trying to to make sense of the world before we start um, really aggressively going out and and uh, you know pursuing new opportunities. So I think I think you're you're hearing from me a, a lot of caution uh, on both sides of that caution not to not to be too heavy handed with the portfolio and caution. Uh, in in avoiding acting too quickly in such a state of uncertainty. No, I think that's that makes a lot of sense. I mean, as you say, we're still very very early on in this, so it's really hard to measure. There's a lot of uncertainty uh, in the world today, and yeah, a lot a lot has changed in the past 30 days. When you're looking at um, you know new investments, new opportunities, are you shifting maybe your strategy a bit away towards certain verticals? Or, and are you 
you know, maybe more diligent, not maybe more, that might be the wrong word, but you're much more mindful in terms of like supply chain processes um, and looking at the, uh, looking at supply chains and some of the brands that you invest in. Uh, Just want to also like hear your thoughts as well. As you say, you were very early on, but just wanted to hear what you're thinking when it comes to to those two things. Yeah. I've tried my best to separate how we think about this, this, the virus into both how it, how it affects demand and supply and how it affects our uh, current world and our post-crisis world. So I think to first go demand and supply, um, you know, I, I, I think in, in many situations, uh, consumers right now in a, in a current virus world are shopping so fundamentally differently. They're avoiding leaving the home at all costs. Um, when they go to the grocery store or go to uh, any retailer that they need to go to, they're not browsing. And so, you know, many ways, it's a time for uh, brands to build on relationships with existing customers and not try to spend time and money on, uh, on new customer discovery. Uh, it, just, it just doesn't make a lot of sense right now. And so, you know, during, during current virus times, I'd, I'd say for the most part, you know, we're, we're um, focused on companies that, uh, that have, I, I guess I'd say, you know, reasonably low levels of disruption to their general communication with consumers and, and general way that consumers shop, uh, which means a prioritization on online. Where you know, in, in many ways, if if you have decent ownership of your supply chain and and you know the ability to avoid a, a situation like Amazon shifting to only essential services or uh, or you know retailers deciding not to not to carry products that don't turn as quickly or are not deemed as essential, um, that you'll still be able to serve your customers. Um, on the on the supply side, I mean, I think I think. You know, everything I just said affects things even more in that, um, you know, we worry in, in many situations in, in our kind of categories and verticals, which are our food, beverage, beauty, and wellness, uh, that, you know, people's demand for products that keep them healthier during these sorts of times uh, and particularly um, give them products to consume when they're at home. Uh, rather while they're working or at home rather than, you know, while they're, while they're traveling, for example, or, or while they're in their, their office, um, you know, the, the, uh, the benefit of the former, you know, during those times of either virus or recession uh, tends to be a lot more resilient. And so I think on, on, on that side, we point ourselves towards you know, the risk being largely in disruption in product getting made, disruption in products getting to, you know, points of sale and disruption at the points of sale. Um, and so on that side, I think we're much more cautious of companies that have all their eggs in one basket in either a given retailer, a given distributor, or a given manufacturer, uh, where, you know, we, we think that while demand will be there, supply won't, and that will cause disruptions for the company. Um, I think I think the bigger question, though, um, which is on a lot of people's minds, is what happens during 
the time period that comes after the virus. Who knows how long the virus lasts, but um, I would probably anticipate that the, the affected time after the virus, before things are back to normal, is a lot longer than the time of the virus itself. And that's going to be a period of real economic, not just market, but real economic instability. Um, you know, the, the portion of our economy in the United States that relies on travel and hospitality and broad services um, that needs people out of their homes, spending money, being around other people, often in close places. Uh, it's just going to cut off a lot of the spend that usually circulates through our economy, and it's going to make a lot more products more vulnerable. Um, fortunately, uh, during a recession, people have to eat, and they often don't trade away from the kind of things that that uh, we invest in, which are, you know, consumable products that sell for you know twenty to fifty percent price premiums, but aren't, you know, luxury products or or high end meals and out of the home. Um, so we think there's resiliency there, but we are also quite mindful of, of you know, what might happen uh, if there's pricing pressure in the market and, and specifically for startups, you know, what might happen in a recession if these companies don't have the runway to keep raising. So uh, the biggest thing that we are mindful of in, in shifting our focus to kind of bring it all together uh, is companies that will do well both operationally uh, and uh, from a capital perspective during any prolonged period of economic downturn, which uh, we certainly don't think is inevitable and in inevitability at this point, but we we think it's quite possible uh, given given where the world is going. So anything that we invest in now, we want to feel really confident in how it would do if there's a downturn of more than a few months. Yeah, I mean that's that's you know very insightful. I mean, like I had I had a conversation. I think it's kind of maybe similar sentiments to this. I had another conver I had a conversation with another investor who said that because I, as you know, I released this coronavirus episode where I got a number of really great, helpful responses from investors. Uh, a few were like, "This doesn't change our strategy. We're long term. We're thinking five, ten years down the road." Um, others talk about how there was a slight shift in their strategy, but. Um, I thought this one investor that I spoke to was interesting because she said it doesn't necessarily change our strategy and what we're investing in, but it does change it does change our strategy in terms of the timing of releasing products. And some of our portfolio companies, for example, were supposed to release and launch in July, but they're now actually thinking about launching like next year or even two years down the road. Hundred percent, hundred percent. I mean, within our within our portfolio, uh, you know, you have you have. Uh, companies that that have online businesses, retail businesses, food service businesses, uh, new retailer launches, new product launches, all impending. Uh, and I'd be lying if if I said that that uh, the virus and a potential economic downturn wouldn't affect the timing of all of that stuff quite significantly. I mean, this is such an unprecedented event, and that people are truly not leaving their homes right now. I mean, there, there, there's nothing that I have seen uh, in my life that I've read about uh, of any economy that looks anything like ours today dealing with something like this, where entire industries basically go to zero uh, for some prolonged period of time, effectively instantly. And so that changes all of the calculus on when you do these things, and it wounds itself back up. 
to an investor decision that you have to make in terms of, you know, when do you put capital behind certain efforts? Uh, when do they need to get paid back by? And how reliant are these companies? This is probably the biggest question. How reliant are these companies on their next capital raise? And what might the world look like when they need to do that? I think for, for everything that we have heard from WeWork and Casper and, and these different you know, lessons around profitability that have become really popular to tout in the, uh, in the venture capital world in the past six to 12 months, um, this will be the ultimate test of, of profitability for companies whether they're able to navigate these waters to show that they can raise capital next uh, on their terms and and you know not during a moment of weakness where the market may not support you know a better outcome than they had last time yeah i think those are great points you know it seems like there was you know i i, I spoke to some founders when it was all kind of happening in the past few weeks and they said that there was um, that we're fundraising and we're chatting to, to investors and it seems like there was just this two-week period of silence from investors. Wanted to see if you observed that as well on your end. Yeah, I mean, th- things, have been, things have been quieter amongst the investors that I, that I largely collaborate with. You know, pe- people have to understand that, you know, e- even in a world where uh, a firm has committed capital, you know, they have LPs who largely um, likely have some degree of public market exposure, definitely have mm-hmm. economic exposure um, and calling capital on their folks, on those folks during these times um, can be quite challenging from a relationship standpoint. And so I think as a lot of people look out into the marketplace and see such a period of volatility and uncertainty, the, the most helpful thing for, for investors to do or as I've, as I've seen them doing so far, is just take a deep breath, react, focus on your own portfolio companies and supporting them where it makes sense, um, but not rush into anything. You know, we don't know what the, uh, what the ultimate effect on supply chains are yet, for example. We don't know what the ultimate effect of uh, public market and economic changes are going to have on seed series A and series B valuations. All of that is very much TBD. And so I think to the, to the companies who are in the midst of the fundraising conversations right now and have seen some of these, uh, some of these conversations stall or slow down or pause, um, I think a, a, a realization that um, people are not going to be excited about rushing into things, even if the message is we're open for business. There's going to be, I think, a, a, a very tempered pace uh, from the world of VC right now. Um, and I think being prepared for that uh, is, is, is all I can really advise. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm certainly seeing it on my end. I'm hearing it from the various companies who I'm not invested in that, that I advise. Um, and, you know, it, I think there's still going to be opportunity uh, to raise capital this year. Um, I think there's, there's definitely going to be a, a lot of opportunity for, for folks to, to tell the story of how they were able to weather this storm uh, and really impress investors with, with how they were able to navigate a crisis. Uh, and show the runway and, and, and profitability that they may benefit from if their business model is set up that way. Um, but, but during this time, I, I have to be frank, it's, it's, it's not the most 
beneficial time to be raising capital. Yeah, I mean, it's it's kind of interesting just looking at the landscape. You know, a few years ago, you had this, I would say, like growth at all costs um, attitude, yeah. I would uh, I would say, when, you know, kind of the height of the bull market. And then a couple of years ago, it seems like there's been this strong push for profitability. A couple companies that you mentioned influenced those kind of investor sentiments. And now, you know, with Corona, it seems like, okay, almost like profitability at all costs, you know, yeah. being able to survive. So, uh, you know, it's just quite interesting looking at the landscape of the past few years. Anyone who's investing uh, in this stage wants to believe that the companies that, that they back based inherently on their business models uh, are, are able to make you know, quick adaptations to strategy to make sure that they can get through a period of uncertainty. You know, you, you don't, you don't want to be playing a, a game of hot potato where the company is so reliant on their next round um, and the music stops and, and you're stuck. So, you know, I, I, I think, I think the, the focus on sound business models sooner than later is, I think, a correct focus shift to, to realize that, you know, when the music does stop or slow down or pause, that your companies are able to react. And those types of companies, I think, for the time being, are going to be far, far more valuable than ones that are beholden to the public markets or sorry, to, to, to fundraising markets. Right. No, that, 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 that makes a lot of sense. Well, Kiva, thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate you sharing your thoughts. Of course. Thanks, Mike. And there you have it. It was such a pleasure chatting with Kiva during these past few months. And I especially appreciate his willingness to have a second conversation on such short notice. Lots of insights in there, and I highly recommend you check out some of his portfolio companies. You can follow Kiva on Twitter at Kiva Dickinson. If you're a founder and working on something innovative, have a question you'd like to hear VCs or founders answer on the show, you can DM me and follow me on Twitter at Mike Gelb. You can also follow for episode announcements at ConsumerVC. For all episodes, please visit theconsumervc.com. Thanks again for listening, and please stay safe, folks.